This podcast is brought to you by the Specialty Produce Network. Kale may be a modern health craze, but it is actually one of the oldest forms of cabbage, dating back over 2,000 years. You can learn all about this king of leafy greens and more by downloading the Specialty Produce app and exploring one of the globe's most comprehensive fresh food databases. Stay hungry, friends. Download today on Apple or Android and start exploring. On the Front Burner puts two no-nonsense culinary professionals on air discussing tough industry topics, interviewing fascinating food personalities, and providing penetrating looks at the industry that we love. We don't always agree and often provide compelling personal insights from a unique combination of life experiences. You know, it's a lively give and take. It's by no means conventional. Elaine owns Sweet Cheeks Baking Company and is a winner of the Food Network's Cupcake Wars and Fabulous Cakes. A seasoned industry professional, she is a cake designer and a certified sommelier. Don is a chef, an award-winning journalist, and a culinary educator. Together we take a not-always-pretty, sometimes-funny, and always-entertaining look at the world of food and beverage. Hello, and welcome to On the Front Burner. I'm Don Williamson. Elaine is away today, uh, so we're doing this solo. And we're going to talk about something that's really important to me as a person, to uh, Chefs de Cuisine that sponsors this, and should be to all of us, and that's healthy eating, and it's healthy eating that takes care of your heart. As many of you know, we do a... um, culinary program where we go into the Boys and Girls Club after school program and show youngsters that Doritos and Mountain Dew are not dinner. We show them how to cook healthy food and hands-on and and they learn about vegetables and and, and things that they hadn't known before. And uh, we think that's a really important place to start. Because um, once you're 18, 19, 20 years old, it's harder to break those habits. And sometimes the cultural habits break in. I, I always remember that we gave, during our first class, these youngsters uh, recipes to take home for what we fixed that day. And the next week, uh, one of the kids came back and said, my grandmother took it and threw it away, told me she was the cook in the house. So there are a lot of impediments that exist in terms of being able to eat healthy and what that means. And to help us talk through that today, we have Elizabeth Epstein. She's an internal medicine physician at UCSD, and she's on her road to becoming a cardiologist, which is also very important to me because, as many of you know, I had an aortic dissection a few years ago. And so heart health has been a very important part of my lifestyle since then. So, Elizabeth, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. Great. Um, I want to talk a little bit about the importance of, of, of this whole cardiovascular healthy eating uh, mantra that we hear. I know we people hear about it, but 
they, I don't think they understand the, the difficulty. I know in, in, in looking at some of your material, you talk about it's the number one cause of death in men and women in the United States and around the world. I think somewhere in the back of my head I understood that, but that's pretty devastating. Talk to us about that a little bit. Absolutely, yeah. So, you know, it, over the years, kind of the disease landscape has shifted. So it used to be that the diseases that people were dying from were infectious diseases, um, you know, diseases that we needed vaccines for. Now that we have a lot of medication, we have antibiotics, we have vaccines, that's actually changed. And the diseases that people are dying from are what, what are called non-communicable diseases, which really are the diseases of lifestyle. So, you know, the chronic diseases like heart disease and and diabetes, stroke, um, that's really the diseases that, that people are dying from now. Um, so to me, that is actually kind of exciting and inspiring because these are the diseases that people can really prevent and influence with their lifestyle choices. So I kind of got into this area of medicine because I thought it's so empowering to know that um, we can make a difference in our own health and prevent a lot of these diseases. Interesting, empowering, and possibly frustrating. Because one of the things that I thought about is if it's the major cause of death in people around the world, that speaks to developing countries. It speaks to developed countries. It speaks to the richest, most powerful country on earth. And I'm just wondering, what are some of the challenges that seem to to make that cut across such a broad swath of, of the populace? Mm-hmm. Absolutely, yeah. I looked into that when I when I started writing the cookbook. Like, what are the barriers that people face to eating healthy? Because a lot of people actually know how they should eat, but they still don't choose to eat healthy. And I wanted the book to try to help overcome some of those barriers. So I kind of researched into them. And I think there are a lot of misconceptions about eating healthy. People think that healthy food is doesn't taste good. And they think of unhealthy food and fast food as, as the good stuff. Um, and that's actually not true at all. Um, and people also think that healthy food is expensive. So they think that it's not affordable. Um, they can't cook it themselves in everyday life. And I wanted to try to prove that all of these things are not true and that um, healthy food is delicious. It can be enjoyed with family and friends on holidays and that it's affordable and easy to cook in everyday life. Yeah, and I found that so much. I remember the when we started these classes at the different boys and girls clubs with the youngsters, invariably, if I said, do you know what this is, what we're doing here? They said, yeah, we're, this is a healthy cooking class. And I says, and what does that mean? And they would either say that means the food is boring or it means the food doesn't taste good. And somehow we've gotten that in our head. Where did that come from? I I honestly don't know. I, I think, you know, just throughout history, maybe that that's kind of maybe healthy food originally was kind of just bird food or just lettuce and, and quinoa or something. And 
and now we've gotten so creative with the way we can cook healthy food and and with flavors and spices and um somewhere along the way the misconception crept in and just developed and stayed um but it's completely completely false so i'm trying to prove that i think historically another issue is that people would go out to eat very rarely it's unlike today you used to go out for a on a birthday or an anniversary or a wedding or something major and what you ate when you were out was full of butter and sugar and salt and fat because you only did it a couple of times a year. So what you ate at home was the boring fare, and what you could go out to eat was this great food. And now that we eat, and I find students when I was teaching who would eat two, sometimes three meals a day eating out, so we eat out all the time. So that fat and sugar and salt and and all of these other items are something we do all the time. It's become something that's a part of what's good and anything else is not. Hmm, that's interesting. I know that another, and I know that all of you are saying, what cookbook is she talking about? We didn't mention that initially in the second half of the show. We're going to be talking about a cookbook that Elizabeth has written called A Beautiful Heart. And it will deal with all of the issues and concepts that we're talking about right now. And I wanted us to start off and kind of learn who Elizabeth is and find out about her thinking about food and eating and that sort of thing. And then we'll get into the cookbook in the second half of the show. And I want you to stay around for that because it's fascinating. And so since we're doing that, Elizabeth, I understand that you are an Irish citizen. Yes. And that part of your love for food came because you worked briefly at a famous restaurant in Ireland. Tell us about that. Yeah, it's called Ballymaloo Cookery School. Any Irish person will know about it. They're they're famous. The Allen family runs it. Um, and I, after undergrad, just wanted to do something and different. And you did undergrad at Berkeley, right? Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. After I graduated, I wanted to do something different before medical school. So um, because I have my Irish roots, I decided to go over to Ireland and got a job working in the restaurant and hotel uh, called Ballymaloo House uh, near Cork, Ireland. And I got to see how they treated food in the restaurant. It was really my first introduction to kind of food behind the scenes. Um, But I also got to see, you know, the way they got the food from their 100-acre organic farm and acre-large greenhouse. And they have an adjacent cookery school called Ballymaloo Cookery School. So I also got a chance to see what was going on in the cooking school and take a few cooking classes as well. What did they have you doing in the kitchen? I actually was a, a, they called a trolley dolly. I ran the cheese trolley that came after dinner and the dessert trolley. So I got to go and speak to the chefs and hear about the cheeses of the day and where they came from locally in Ireland and what the desserts were and where what was in the desserts and, and explain that to uh, guests. And none of that made you decide, gee, this is what I want to do for the rest of my life. 
I was already determined to become a doctor at that time. So um, it was just kind of an, an extra wonderful experience that really inspired me, definitely changed my life, the time that I spent at Ballymaloo. Okay. What does that mean? What did you leave there with that has you able to tell me now it changed my life? Tell me a little bit more about that. I think just the way they treated food as a way to serve people, not just to serve people food, but to to serve people in the larger sense. And I, I really felt that it was like they were they were doing something big in the world in this tiny little country you know, corner of the world, they were doing something bigger. It was like food was sacred and, and it was do or die, the, you know, getting the dishes perfectly and serving them to the guests. And they, it wasn't just about, you know, the, the business of it. It was about something bigger, um, really just giving people a good experience through food. Um, and, I kind of took that, I was inspired by that, and I thought, I want to give people a good experience through medicine and want people, you know, want to treat it as a sacred experience for them. Um, so it really influenced how I approached medicine. And then it also, you know, inspired me that food could be this wonderful work of art um, and just some positive force in the world. Yeah, I really like that idea. That's something that you has been a theme for you, it seems, that food is art. And one of the things that we'll talk about more later is that art doesn't have to be perfect, and it doesn't have to be anybody else's version of it. And when you think about that with food, that gives you a whole different aspect to look at. Absolutely. So you had this experience in Ireland, and you came back here and started medical school, and you had another epiphany experience. Tell us about that. Yeah, so just by, I think by luck, by serendipity, I ended up getting paired randomly with a local integrative cardiologist, Dr. Suhar, uh, at Scripps Center for Integrative Medicine. And I was really inspired by his treatment of food as medicine, and I'd never seen a doctor really just go down to the nitty-gritty and counsel his patients on lifestyle changes, um, you know, treating them as important, um, as if they were as important as the medications that he was going to put the patient on, and or perhaps more important. Um, so I saw him counsel patients on diet, make very specific evidence-based dietary recommendations to them. And I also saw the patients make huge changes in their lives. And I saw them watch their cholesterol plummet, and um, which is a good thing, uh, and lose weight and reverse their diabetes. And I thought, wow, this is my favorite part of medicine. It's so exciting, and these people are doing this for themselves. So I I had a new new epiphany about food. You know, first it was food as art, and then it was food as medicine. Um, the thing I did kind of start to notice is that food had lost its excitement and art and inspiration um, that, I, that I had seen at Ballymaloo. It kind of felt like people— thought their new dietary prescription was a punishment. Uh, so I I thought, I think I need to try to marry these two concepts, food as art and food as medicine. Mm-hmm. Um, because 
although you saw these changes in this circumstance, by and large, you don't see that kind of change. I know you talked about a study that 45,000 people uh, went through in looking at metrics that looked at not smoking, at being physically active, at having normal blood pressure, having normal glucose, having a normal total cholesterol and normal weight, and eating healthy, that less than 2% out of 45,000 people followed all those metrics. Talk to me about how you get over that hump or how you address that We've already said we're not sure why it exists, but how do you address that? And why do you think that worked with the doctor you were paired with and it seems not to work overall? Mm-hmm. Well, I actually took that that study. It's, I call it one of my favorite studies, that and the PREDIMED trial, which we can talk about later. Um, but as kind of an exciting thing that spurred me on because what as you what the studies showed was this as people meet more of these health metrics, which these are actually things, very achievable metrics for people in their lives that they can do with with their lifestyle. Um, as people met more of them, their risk of cardiovascular disease and their mortality plummeted. Um, so I thought, wow, like it's it's really a dramatic result if you look at the study figure and the, the graph, and these things plummeting. Um, but that less than 2% met the health metrics. It's like, we are missing the boat here. So there's more work to do. And I thought, I want to get into it and, and help. Even though there are so many people working towards these things, um, we could use another. So I, I jumped in. Um, and, you know, I think why people aren't, I think, like we kind of talked about, there's some maybe historical reasons, there's some cultural barriers, there's some, you know, perceived barriers like the financial aspect and um, and the taste of the food. And I think also, you know, we know too that um, doctors aren't getting a lot of education about nutrition in medical school. And I think there's a lot of misunderstanding even among physicians uh, as well as patients about what is healthy and what is not. There's a lot of dietary fads out there, and people just don't know where to turn. Um, I think we all kind of need to get on the same page. Yeah, because I know my cardiologist went to Yale, worked at the Mayo Clinic, and told me that she had zero information about nutrition while she was going to school. But here we are talking about the heart and cardiovascular disease. That's pretty amazing. What sort of nutrition education did you get while you were in school? It was primarily focused in in the primary curriculum. It was primarily focused on vitamins and the structure of vitamins and the absorption of vitamins and very in less practical knowledge about nutrition and what to advise patients on. I did have the opportunity to take a nutrition elective with Dr. Cheryl Rock, who is a UCSD nutritionist. Um, and I got a lot more practical knowledge through her and she um, actually worked with me on the book as well. Hmm. Okay, good. Um, And I also think that you've hit on something when you talk about cost, because when we talk to parents in these programs, we also work 
with the Berry Good Foundation, and the Berry Good Foundation puts vegetable gardens in local schools, and once the youngsters have harvest, we send our chefs in to show the youngsters how to make meals out of what they've grown. And we constantly run into comments from parents, teachers, even students, that it costs too much to eat healthy. And that whole concept is one that we need to knock down because I don't think people understand it costs less to eat well. And you know what's going in your food, and that makes such a major difference. And and I think that that whole cost issue is is, is another factor. I think that one thing that may happen is time. I think people perceive it takes more time, more labor to do this. And maybe it does, but there are ways to incorporate that. I know one of the things that I try to tell folks is if you watch the football game on Sunday, maybe the thing to do is while people are watching the football game, you fix your meals for the week. Or or if Saturday's the day for that, or you fix your meals and you freeze them, there's so many aspects of being able to eat well that I don't think people are aware of or, or don't think about. Yeah, I think time is another huge, huge barrier. Everybody's busy. Everybody's go, go, go. And people don't think they have time. And and I think I agree with you. It does take time to cook at home. It's It takes more time than it does to pick up McDonald's. But... It's a priority that's worth making time for. And I think it's a priority, and we talk about education, and I think it's also just about reading labels. Um, we have a, an exercise we do with our youngsters. I'll put cans up, and we'll put labels on them. And I say, well, we're going to make a meal out of this, so go up and pick it. But what I put on the labels is one is – 99% salt and one and the first ingredient is sugar. And I just think people don't read labels. They look at the picture, they see the title, and they don't look at what's in their food. Yeah, absolutely. Especially, you know, if you're buying pre-prepared food or food in boxes, I think reading the label and realizing, you know, is there saturated fat or trans fat? And like you said, if lots of sugar, if the first ingredient is sugar. But even before that, just... Eating the rain, simple, simple, simple principles like eating the rainbow, eating whole grains. Okay, explain eating the rainbow for people that may say, what's she talking about? Just try to eat as many fruit and vegetables as you possibly can and make your plate colorful. Right. You know, you got red and yellow and green and all these different colors and the antioxidants and the vitamins and the minerals in them make all the difference. Yes, absolutely. Another issue is that I think you talk a lot about looking at the big picture of health. I think people think, well, I'm going to have some potato chips. What difference does that make? Or, you know, do this meal or do that. But they don't look at that entire big picture. Can you talk a little bit about what that big picture is and why it's so important. Yeah. So uh, biggest picture for me, health is living a long, happy and fulfilling life. So, you know, I, I just recognize that there's more 
to medicine. That's something I, I really love. It's just that there's more to medicine. There's more to health than I can understand with science. So that joy that of food we were talking about and enjoying life is part of health in addition to you know the nutrients and the labels and cooking at home. So there's a lot that goes into it. Um, and then you know moving down about diet, I think it's about the overall dietary pattern. So, you know, you got to enjoy it, got to enjoy the food. And then, you know, looking at these simple principles I was talking about, like lots of fruit and vegetables, whole grains, um, incorporating that in. And um, and then sometimes if you do eat some potato chips, it's okay. That That's what the overall pattern is about. You don't have to focus on every single nutrient and kind of obsess over that. Um, it's, it's more about the overall healthy eating pattern in the context of a healthy lifestyle where you exercise, get good sleep, have good social relationships. Um, and I think with all of that together, um, is is moving towards good health. And I think that's an important concept because when people think of diet, they think about, I'm on a diet. You know, I have to go on a diet to lose weight or go on a diet to lower my cholesterol. But they don't think of diet and that overall concept you just talked about. I think you described that beautifully in terms the picture of diet is everything, you know, your interactions with people, your exercise, all of those things that are so important. And those figures that we don't think about, people always hear about blood pressure, maybe think about uh, cholesterol. They don't think about glucose. They don't think about a lot of other things that are involved in that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, there's a lot to it. And I think it's it's hard to understand, especially if you're coming in and you're having all these different dietary plans thrown at you from different angles in the media or blogs. And um, you're like, what do I focus on in my health? And and it actually takes a lot to understand it. I think it's taken me probably all of my training to put this all together and for me to see what what factors are, go into and influence overall health. And um, so I'm trying to help communicate people, com- communicate that to people and, and help guide people and empower them to find that for themselves. Do you find people are more receptive to that now, less receptive, or what are you finding when you spread this gospel? I think people are receptive. Um, I, I really felt that the world, <laughs> or anyone I encountered, was really receptive to my message with the book. Um, I felt that it took on a momentum of its own, and it really made me believe that that people needed this. And then in my practice as a doctor, I talk to pretty much every patient about healthy lifestyle practices. And I just, I'm honest with them. And I tell them, this is what the research tells us is recommended. And, you know, maybe sometimes it's shocking if I'm saying 30 minutes of exercise every single day, um, or if I'm really telling them a diet that's completely different from what they're eating currently. Um, But um, I think people are generally receptive to it. And I just say, you know, if, and I, and I. Does receptive to it mean they follow the guidelines and they do it or they just say, yeah, you're right. I understand. I think it's hard to tell. It's hard to measure some, some small changes. And, 
um, definitely there are people who completely change their life and and follow a new dietary pattern or different lifestyle recommendations. But um, in a way, I don't even really care <laughs> how how successful it is. I will never stop fighting because... You just need to get it out there and then they have to make a personal decision. Yeah. If we don't stop, if, if we don't keep fighting for this, then there's no hope. So I will always keep fighting for it and I will always fight for patients as well. And, and no matter how many times, even if, you know, for example, if they were to not stop smoking, I will never stop bringing it up because if if I, as their doctor, doesn't fight for them, then who will? And I think the same is for diet and exercise. I will always fight for it no matter, you know, and some studies will come out saying, oh, well, when a doctor counsels on lifestyle, it doesn't make any changes. I don't care because how can you really measure that? And if I stop, then there's no hope. Well, we hope you don't stop. We're glad you're here today. And we're looking forward to the second half of this show when we talk about A Beautiful Heart, the healthy eating cookbook you've written. And right now we want to thank Elizabeth Epstein for being with us today. And we want to tell you that you have been on the front burner. I'm Don Williamson. We'll talk to you again soon.